this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face to face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We thank the true and living God for this program, for allowing us to be part of this ministry. We hope and pray he will be with you tonight. There are nine more programs, including tonight, before the end of 2012. We plan to continue our examination of the Book of Mormonian beginning next week and finish it up by the end of December. However, with only one week left to go before the U.S. presidential elections and the fact that Christians all over America have endorsed an active Latter-day Saint for the office, we think it's important to address the matter biblically and apart from the heated opinions of the fervent masses. One of the reasons that I left Mormonism was because I was not able to recognize, uh, uh, reconcile their man-made opinions and doctrines with the Word of God. Mormon culture, a byproduct of human reasoning, dominated almost all I was taught to think and say and do and when I was an active member of that religion. I was able to find a true spiritual, uh, a true spiritual foundation when I read the Word of God and knew that through the Word of God, what rules of engagements are really his for living life as opposed to the rules that men and women make up? Looking at American evangelical Christianity today, I find myself once again surrounded by man-centered thinking and culture, especially when it comes to the current political situation. This is going to be the last night I talk about it. After next week, it's done. Last week, we traveled to Nampa, Idaho to wrap up the final stop of our national summer spe uh, speaking tour. And while we were on the road, I received a phone call. The tour has been a long, relentless, and sometimes thankless exercise in presenting irrefutable biblical truths to believers who have come to equate Christianity with being a Republican, uh, with the mythical mandate that all Christians should participate in the election process, and pa by participating disrespectfully in condemning any political leader who differs with them on how to govern the nation, especially our nation's current commander-in-chief. Somehow forgetting that it was God, listen to me, it was God who put our current commander-in-chief in power over the nation four years ago. Every Bible-reading Christian would have to agree with that. Along the tour, I was called a dreamer, a fanatic, a plant for Obama, a radical, ignorant, liberal, all because I unapologetically maintain that true Christianity, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, what the New Testament describes for us stands completely independent, even wholly indifferent to the political machinations of man. The phone call I received was from a faithful viewer and financial partner who was contacting us to cancel her monthly support. She said I was using too much of our television time to talk about politics and that I needed to leave it alone. I am certain that if my views agreed with hers, the call would have never come. So leaving politics alone was not the real issue. Uh, it was to get me to leave her unbiblical views alone uh, that drove her to make the call. 
here is one of the problems with mixing Christianity with politics. It divides brothers and sisters in the body who are commanded to be one, which would not happen if believers left them out of the Christian walk altogether. After speaking to the church in Nampa, another woman forwarded us an email. It's, her husband had sent this out to all his internet contacts after hearing me speak in that city. This is what it said in part. We listened to a man last night that the Lord brought out of Mormonism. Thank the Lord for that miracle. He was a teacher and well-versed in the LDS Foundation. However, he didn't have a clue on the elections. I'm asking that every Christian will wake up and face the enemy with courage and use their weapons with skill. If you vote for anyone except Romney, you're throwing your vote to Obama, who has demonstrated his disdain for America. A write-in or a no vote amounts to a vote for Obama. All awake watchmen on the wall, quoting from the Bible, Old Testament, should vote Republican. Other emails also delivered in Jesus' name have been similarly terrifying. Listen to the fear-mongering that is included in this rant from a woman from Sandy, Utah. Sean, we live in a dangerous and troubling times. This election will be the most important one of our lives. Really? Are we willing to continue with the status quo and be led down the path to the total destruction of America? Obama's biggest item on his agenda is to bring the downfall of the U.S. and force all of us to live under Sharia law. Do you know what that would mean? I don't. Obama could care less about our Constitution and would like to amend it, ridding us of our freedom of speech and religion, for he would force us all to become Muslims. I got to stop here on this statement for a second. How can anybody force us, me, to become a Muslim? Are they going to force me to face Mecca and pray? How do they remove Jesus out of my heart? If they kill me, that's fine. But how does someone force someone to become a Muslim? Just, just thinking. Anyway, she continues on. Is this what you want for our country? At least Mitt will uphold the Constitution and do his best to bring the U.S. back to greatness. Please, Sean, from now on, keep your political ideas out of your programs. These are the important issues that affect all of us, and you should be worried. And you should vote. Please consider how important this is to your family and ours and all people in this country before it's too late. As a sold-out follower of Jesus Christ who only wants to do what this manual I have before me tells me to do contextually, I have examined attitudes like these and the ones that I personally bear in an effort to determine God's will. Who is right? Our opinions and what makes us feel good and right enough, that's what the LDS say, or do we approach the subject of Christianity and politics using what this manual conveys to us? Uh, like everything we say and do on this program, we must use the manual. 
no matter who endorses who for the next president and no matter how dire or urgent everybody says this pressing situation is, we have to consult the manual and how it describes us as Christians to understand. Now, I realize that my position is represented by a very small minority of good believers around the country. I won't argue with them. We know that the important players in national evangelical Christianity, from Todd Friel to Billy Graham to Norman Geisler to Joel Osteen, we know they are ardently saying something completely different than what I am going to say tonight. But they're wrong. They are absolutely wrong. I can't say this because I'm a better Christian. I'm not. I can't say it because I uh, am smarter or more qualified than these men and some of these women. I'm not. I say this because they are not using the New Testament to make their stance. They are pulling from their own reasoning, just like the LDS have always done in my life, and have attached Jesus' name to what they have concluded to be good and right. So, as with everything else we say on the program, don't believe me for a second. But instead, measure what I have to say against the New Testament, which is the manual for Christians, and prove me wrong. We've spent years pointing out the fallacious thinking of Mormons, and you guys have licked it up. Well, now you're going to have some of your own medicine. I am not a radical. I am not a liberal in any sense of the word. Nor am I a dreamer. I am a Christian who follows what the manual says, and I refuse to act in, uh, by or through any other input, especially if it goes counter to what the manual tells us. So let's begin with a prayer. Father God, uh, I need you greatly. Our audience needs you. Our nation needs you. Our leaders need you. Uh, we are people who live in a fallen place, and so guide us. Help us to put our trust and faith as Christians in you and you alone, Lord. We pray for our help, those who are here volunteering and, and those who are on staff, those who are out in TV land, on the internet streaming or in our live audience. We pray for this now. People who are seeking for truth, in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to take a drink of water here and we'll get going. I want to talk to you about drawing conclusions for a minute. As believers, we're supposed to arrive at our conclusions based on the word of God. We read what it has to say, always contextually, and then we draw our conclusions out from what we discover. For example, where the Word of God says, set your affections on things above, not on things of this earth, we can make the conclusion on how to formulate our worldview as followers of Christ and where to place the focus of our heart and our time. Additionally, what Romans 8.5 says, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. We are able to conclude from this that there are things Christians are supposed to focus on with our minds and our time and things that God says we do not need to mind, the things of the flesh. The first conclusion I hope to get to you, to get you to admit here tonight with me is that because of Adam, this world fell and remains in a darkened state of sin. If you don't believe this, you're never going to agree with the rest of what I'm going to say, so you might as well turn the channel. But if you agree, stay with me. 
From the biblical perspective, all of us were born in sin, separated from the mind and will of God, alienated from him, and needing reconciliation. Spiritual rebirth. Now, if we were to walk into any major metropolitan uh, metropolis, uh, any Starbucks in New York or Chicago or L.A., uh, and ask any modern human being sitting there sipping their latte, uh, what is the state of man? Nine times out of ten, we would hear a philosophy that says, we're all good. Uh, everybody's God's child, and all paths are acceptable as long as a person's trying to do good and, and be good and live right. In many ways, this is the LDS perspective. But if this perspective is true, we can throw the Bible away because it says something different. If this is true, we can throw Jesus away. He said and taught and lived a different way. And we can toss his claims and teachings, his sacrifice away. We can throw our arms up out to the world and say, it's all good. We're all good. All roads lead to heaven as long as we're just trying to do good and live good and make good happen. Okay? Now, I would suggest that this philosophy is an altogether natural one that comes from the heart of a natural man and woman, from the hippies to the humanists to the atheists to the proponents of Eastern religion, from the university professors to the special interest groups, all the way out to the growing ecumenical factions out there that are joining forces, sprouting up everywhere. People are adopting a one world, everything is good, all roads lead to heaven, don't offend or exclude anybody. There are brothers. Let's join hands. Sing kumbaya mindset. But in the end, this philosophy takes God's singular way where he said, straight is the gate, narrow is the way, few be there that find it. And it says it's too demanding. It's too limiting. Worst of all, it's, um, in, it's not inclusive enough. It's not loving enough. In the process, it also takes Jesus' teachings about himself, his teachings about hell, his teachings about Christian suffering, and it says those are figurative. They're untenable in this day and age. They're archaic. So our first conclusion that every real Christian has to admit is this world fell into a darkened state of sin and everybody on this spinning globe is condemned until and unless they receive God Almighty's singular solution to their fallen state, his son, period. Do you agree with me so far? Good. The second conclusion biblical Christians must admit is that there is only one solution to this world's fallen and condemned state. It's not a combo solution. It's not a hybrid solution. It's not a solution by and through force or politics or legislation. The solution is not and never has been uh, social programs or aimed at reducing world suffering. Jesus said we will always have the poor with us. The solution is not political action committees backed by the Republican or Democrat or Libertarian or Socialist or Communist parties striving to eradicate evil. And while God gave us science to assist us in this fallen pit of a world, science is not the solution the Bible offers either. Listen, Hard as it is for many Christians more and more to believe and understand the solution is not founded on good people banding together to fight pornography and homosexuality and divorce and abortion and stem cell research and all other forms of social evil. These are the responses of religion, not of Christianity.
That is not Christianity. And if you think it is, you've made a sorry mistake. Did you hear me? These are the responses of religious men and women who think they are doing God's will by trying to morally rectify this place, but it's not Christianity, and it never has been Christianity. Why? Because true Christianity, the solution has always been singular. Jesus Christ, the preaching, teaching, sharing, and exemplifying of him. And the Bible tells us so. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the love of Jesus Christ extended from believers to those who don't know him and to those who do. As radical and liberal as this sounds, it is nothing more. Nothing. If it was something more, then the gospel would have included something more. And when Jesus was on the earth, he would have taught his disciples to do something more. And Jesus himself certainly would have done something more, especially in the face of a horribly godless Roman government. And yet our king, God in the flesh, and those he trained did nothing to try to move or improve the world through political means, ever. Listen, this fact alone, when we read the Bible, this fact alone ought to move every true Christian who live to live lives of peaceful subservience wherever they are in this world. What I mean by this is our brothers and sisters who are living in Burma, which is under the control of a very bad man, will submit to the despot Thine Shui, and true Christians in China will obey Hu Jintao, and humble Cuban Christians would be submissive to, that's right, Fidel Castro. And listen, this means American Christians would quietly submit and pray for our elected commander-in-chief, Barack Obama. The Apostle Paul clearly dictates the attitude believers are supposed to have toward those in power, no matter who they are. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good then, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do uh, that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. That was written by Paul in the face of the Roman government who killed Jesus. Do you understand what it means for a Christian to stand up and fight and belittle those who have been put in power over us, even if that person uh, is a despot, even if it's Stalin? Do you realize what it says? We're gonna go on. Notice that Paul says nothing here about getting involved in worldly affairs. All he says is followers of Christ be subject to higher powers. 
Instead of adopting a subservient and humble position before governing powers, believers, especially American evangelical Christians, have somehow come to piously justify using Jesus' name to try and save and govern this nation. It has the right, they have chosen to fight politically and even in the streets against world evil as a means to try and overcome it. In the process, they have errantly and ignorantly exposed the simple, beautiful, not of this world, faith of our Lord to the wiles and whims of politicians in an effort to win an unwinnable, unbiblical war against sin. Let's examine the popular and ever-growing American Christian fanaticism to fight sin and the sinful world politically or even in the streets in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where did American Christianity think it gained the right to openly condemn and attack our president? What kind of witnesses are we when we willfully choose to ignore Romans 13 and verbally assault the man God put in the Oval Office four years ago? Perhaps the better question is, who are we? What does it really mean to be a Christian? And when and how did the Christian church come to mean something other than church? Seriously, when did the humble, faithful, submissive believers, like the ones who were fed to the lions, the ones who were burned in Nero's garden, when did we morph into politically motivated, fear-mongering zealots who speak in the name of a king who would have nothing to do with these antics ever in his life? Perhaps we ought to consider the New Testament and how it defines the identity genuine Christians have before we proceed. There's a story told in Islamic circles about a lion pup that got lost from its mother. Somehow that lion pup was found by a herd of sheep, and it grew up uh, uh, thinking that it was a sheep. And so it went around with this flock of sheep, and it grew up to a full size, and one day the mother relocated her little pup, which is now full grown, and she saw that it suffered from a tremendous identity crisis. So she led the large cub to a pond of water, and she had it look into its reflection. It was at this moment that the lion realized for the first time in its existence that it was not a sheep at all, but a great king of the jungle, a full-grown meat-eating lion. Using this illustration, Muslims teach a single simple principle to their adherents. You are not sheep. You are lions. In a fear-laden response, Christians have allowed themselves to believe and embrace the same identity and all the attitudes that seem to come with it. Setting the New Testament teachings aside, believers have come to believe that Christians must fight, that Christians must resist injustices, that Christians have rights, and that we ought to even reign, even legislate righteousness. But this is certainly not the biblical message, is it? Quite the opposite. In the Christian narrative, the story, I think, would go something like this. There was a little lamb that was lost from its mother, and it was raised up miraculously by a giant pride of lions. Throughout its life, it grew up among these lions, and in time, it thought it was a giant, meat-eating, ferocious king of the jungle. One day, a good shepherd found the now fully grown sheep and took it out from among the lions. Seeing that the sheep thought himself a great meat-eater, 
the shepherd took the woolly animal to a pool of living water and there looking in his reflection for the first time, the shepherd exposed the sheep to a new, true identity. And for the first time in its existence, he was able to see for himself who he truly was, not a great lion, not a meat eater, but a harmless, humble sheep who needs the shepherd in every step of their walk, whose life is now forever altered by the shepherd who saved it. When our king walked this earth, he went to great lengths to avoid using his person and power for political means. Even when men tried to make him the immediate solution to overcoming evil. Instead, Jesus came and did what he needed to do. Teaching the fallen world that it needs him spiritually. That is what he taught. And as a king to govern the human heart, not human fallen world circumstances. Certainly, our king fed the hungry masses as we are commanded to do in his name. And certainly, he was in great favor of helping those who were in physical need, especially the fatherless and widows. But every time this world misinterpreted Jesus and his mission and therefore sought to make him an earthly king, uh, as many in the body today seek to make Jesus this earthly despot, he refused the election. Listen to John 6.15. It says, When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into the mountain himself alone. Why? Why did the Lord depart from being made an earthly king? We find the answer in a dialogue that he had shortly before his death with a man named Pilate. Standing before Pilate, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. Ask yourself something. If the Lord's kingdom is not of this world and his apostles' kingdom is not of this world, why is yours? Why do you give time and attention to this fallen place? Why do you live in fear of what's going on in it? Throughout scripture, there is a clear delineation made between the kingdom of God for which we wait in faith for and the kingdoms of this fallen material world. And according to scripture, the two have literally nothing to do with each other. Does the Lord or his apostles ever, anywhere, suggest that believers should be involved in fighting against the things of this fallen world? Is it our duty as recipients of everlasting life to make war with the world already gone bad, to fight against social ills, to threaten worldly institutions and uh, ideologies of evil with collective economic sanctions if they don't do what we want as a body of Christ? I would strongly su suggest that if you answer yes to these questions, you have made a serious error in understanding what being a Christian is. Ask yourself, are American Christians today known more for what we stand against than what we stand for? Ask yourself that question honestly. The honest answer provides us with some indication of how far we have strayed from the biblical purpose and point of genuine Christianity. What were the uh, words of Jesus' great commission? Do you remember them? You remember in Matthew 27 or 26, 27, I don't know. Or you, you remember him. Remember he said, hey, go forth and be right-wing politically gay-fighting, whore-hating, border-protecting zealots. Yay, yay, go forth into the world and pick at them abortion clinics in my name. Make them feel bad. Yay, blow them to smithereens if you must. Yay, go forth and fight against anybody who differs from you. Yea, fight those who take away your rights. Yea, do it in my name, for this is the good news. 
Yea, make the sinful world hate you so much that they will never want to have anything to do with what you believe. Verse 2. Uh, yea, be smug. Yea, live in fear. Yea, justify your opinions. Protect your own interests. Attack your appointed leaders in my name, you know. You know what he said. He said, go ye therefore and teach. Teach all nations. Baptizing, it's a beautiful thing. Them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Teaching, again he says, them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. And when Jesus said in that passage, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded, what did he mean? Just what did our Lord command us Christians to do? He told us first, believe on him, follow him and what he did. Share and teach of him to those who are still in sin and to love. And he said, as you do this, expect to suffer. That's what he said. I think this is the main thing believers at large in America fear. They have become very afraid of suffering. And so they have gone so far as to endorse a man who rejects the Jesus and God that we know and believe, they, he, who rejects the salvation we embrace and described in the Bible in order to save them from suffering. We're afraid. And so we've said, give us a king. Every single day, almost without fail, our ministry receives an email from some well-meaning believer whining about or telling us to fearfully fight against the collective loss of our rights in this world as Christians. Christian rights. I've never heard more of an oxymoronic line in my life. Christian rights. When I read the Bible, I don't see anything about Christian rights. These emails complain about the Ten Commandments being taken down from municipal and federal buildings. That's unfortunate. Or the fact that creationism is being replaced with Darwinism in the libraries and labs of our public school turned to almost any Christian radio station in America today. Even this very television station. And you're sure to hear someone frothing on and on about standing up for our rights. Our right to wear crosses. Our rights to public prayer, to protest, free speech on public grounds. Christianity today, blah, has involved in everything from protecting our sacred borders and making sure we get a man in office who will, darn it, protect our rights. Our bloody, modern-day, evangelical, politically motivated, not in the New Testament anywhere, Christian rights. Again, how does the Bible describe the rights of a follower of Christ? That's where we get our answer. Let's see. It says we have the right to suffer. And it says we have the right to ill-treatment to which we turn around and enjoy. It says we have the right to be hated, which we are supposed to rejoice over. Remember the words of the Lord. He said, blessed are ye when men shall hate you and when they shall separate you from their company and shall reproach you and cast your name as evil for the son of man's sake, not because you're an idiot. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that believers ought to allow themselves to be defrauded. Did you know he said that? Did you know where the, the world it says to litigate and sue and make demands and seek retribution? Our king taught the exact opposite. He said, if any man will sue you at the law, let him have your coat. Let him have your cloak also. Listen to what he said. He said, resist not evil. Did you hear that? He said it. Resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite you on the right cheek, Turn to him the other also. 
Do good to those who despitefully use us. Return evil with good. People ask me, Sean, well, what are you going to do if they, if they take away your freedoms to preach? I'll preach anyway. That's something that's in the Bible. That's something that I can do as a believer. I'll preach anyway. Well, what are you going to do if, if they take away your pretty little crosses? I'll wear them anyway. What are you going to do if they take away your program? I mean, do you want them to take away your program? We'll go underground. We'll go to jail. We'll refuse the mark. We'll suffer for his sake. We're not afraid. We don't need to put in a king who represents a completely different religion to save us. See, the early church did it. The believers then did it. They thoroughly suffered for him, horribly. But not this American evangelical monster. No, sorry, Bob. They're afraid of suffering. So it has sold its soul to elect a social savior who they hope will redeem them and protect them and return the rights they errantly believe they possess as believers in Jesus. Jeez, I can't believe it. Real Christians know the facts. Listen to 1 John 5, 4. We'll wrap it up with this. For whatsoever is born of God cometh, whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. That's what it says. Who is he that overcomes the world but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? Christians have never overcome the world by might, by elections, or money, or power, or the flesh. For we know that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, through him, not us. So standing before Pilate, Jesus was asked, are you a king? And he said this, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight. That I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from hence. From this exchange, we learn from Jesus that his kingdom is not of this world, and the proof that it's not of this world is that if it was, his servants would fight. Pilate repeats the question, are you a king then? And Jesus said, you say I'm a king, which means yes, I am. And he says, to this end I was born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. From these words we realize even more about the Lord and our duty in following him. Jesus certainly is a king. He says, to this end I was born. But he explains what his birth and mission and ministry were all about, saying, for this cause I came into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. And he is the way, the truth, and the life. Is this not the sole Christian duty as well of all of us to bear witness of the truth, which is Christ and Christ Jesus alone? It is. Whatever the results of this coming presidential election, whether it be President Obama or Mitt Romney, I, for one, am wholly ambivalent to the outcome because neither of them is my king. I will submit and pray for either of them and their well-being. I will do what they say insofar as it is in line with the New Testament directives of being a Christian. But I am a Christian and my kingdom and my king is not of this world. I hope you join in that. Let's open up the phones, 801-973-8820. 801-973-TV20. In response to this speech, we've had a number of uh, uh, resistant points. If we can get to them, we will in the last six minutes of the program. We're going to show you a spot which we uh, need your help, 
help desperately, and we pray that you will consider this, what we're going to show you with the Lord. We'll come back and take your phone calls. Yeah, it's been amazing. It's been an amazing ride. All glory and honor to him for letting us be a part of it. We have been able to see so many people not just leave Mormonism, but come out into a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's worth its weight in gold. Since 2003, Aletheia Ministries has sought to reach people with the good news of Jesus Christ. In 2006, we aired a first of its kind, a weekly live call-in television program that compares and contrasts biblical Christianity with present-day Mormonism. Uh, we could talk about how they say Jesus was a created being. Bible says he's the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, Bible says he was not created by anybody. He's uncreated. The Mormon Church says that Jesus Christ suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane. But all the references to suffering and to our being Christian is focused on the cross in the Bible. The Mormon Church says that, that you are not righteous because of Christ's life. The Bible says he imputes his righteousness into us as believers. So we're not only cleansed of our sins, we are made righteous by our faith on him. Since that day, Aletheia Ministries has published three book titles, distributing over 20,000 copies all over the United States and world baptized hundreds of people, seen thousands come out of Mormonism, tens of thousands refuse attempts of the LDS missionaries, and has equipped literally millions of people with the facts about Mormonism relative to Biblical Christianity. And we've only just begun. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just love my country. I am a Mormon. I am a Mormon. And I am a Mormon. The year of 2012 has been dubbed the Mormon Moment, as the LDS Church, for the first time in its strange and troubled history, is seeking to have one of its own assume the most powerful and respected position in the world, that of President of the United States. After 40 years of activity in Mormonism, Aletheia founder, television host, author, and non-denominational pastor, Sean McCraney, is able to articulate the positive and negative effect of the Mormon moment. Mormonism brings in a minimum of $16 million a day. They own the internet, uh, and they're very adept at swaying public opinion. We've got to inform people about what Mormonism is truly about. We're in a position to do something to stop it. We have the material. We just need some ability to get that material out to the public. Aletheia Ministries is placed to move its television programs, podcasts, books, and website materials not only into different languages, but into far more invasive distribution channels. But we need your help.
if the time is right for you and the inclination has come to you from our king, please consider Alethea Ministries this tax year. This ministry is about love. It is not about antagonism. We use methods to reach people's hearts, to get them to search out these facts for themselves. And, 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 and that's what we're about, and we need your help to do it. I can't think of anything else. Welcome back. We're going to go to Roland in Provo, first-time caller. Roland, you're on Heart of the Matter. Oh, uh, Sean, uh, I'm listening uh, today for the for first time for a long time, and I must say this is the most intelligent and the most Christian statement anyone made in uh, my church. I'm a Mormon, and I'm a uh, believing Mormon, but in, in, in my church or outside the church about the involvement of Christians in the political process. It's, it's sad when I heard these, uh, uh, these uh, statements that the people make. Uh, I can hear them now. Uh, they wrote to you how they, how, how they uh, try to influence what, whom to vote for. Yeah. So I, I, I was really impressed. I'm 87 years old, so give me credit for some maturity. And I've, I'm alone now. And uh, I've been listening for, for a long time, all these uh, broadcasts on, on this channel, all the religious people. And uh, they, uh, they uh, I, lo I know them all, Jason Watcock, uh, John Hagee, and whatever, Dr. Stanley, and I've been listening to all. But, but in, for that particular point that you made, you're the best and the most intelligent that I heard of any Christian to say. And I, I'm sad to say... I don't hear this in my church. In fact, all the prominent historians of uh, uh, this nation uh, all say, in Utah, God is Republican. Oh, God. Time. oh Lord, help us. You know, I, uh, Roland, I would, even though you're 87 years old, you're very articulate, and I would, if we talked Mormon doctrine, I would probably get red in the face with you. But I'm glad to, to hear your support of it because it's not, it's not what Christianity is about. It never has been. And I don't know how these people, whoever they are, justify it in our Lord and Savior's name. He didn't come to, to do it, and it just really gets <laughs> under my skin. And yet it seems to be the popular thing, doesn't it? Right. The statement you made, because I object the same thing, the, the reason is why, you, as you said correctly, it divides us. Absolutely. That's and, and that's, that's the bad part of it. So yeah. thanks for your time. I don't know if I'm going to listen to you again. I really wasn't going to listen to you anymore because you were strong and anti-Mormon, and I, yeah. uh, I don't agree with someone, but that, that's fine. That, that's your program. Yeah. But if for some reason tonight, I thought I'm going to listen to you again. Well, praise God, Roland. Maybe we can agree on a few other points later on down the road. All, all right. Well, <laughs> thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Roland. God bless. Bye-bye. We're going to Jesse in Salt Lake City. He's first-time caller. He's LDS. Jesse, you're on Heart of the Matter. How are you doing, Sean? I'm doing well. How are you? Just fine. How does it, how does it feel to see where the Christian church is right now? You know, uh, 
I don't know where in the Bible it says it's going to get better. It says it's going to get worse. But I know. You know, the thing is, is that, you know, God told us, you know, he says, don't defile yourself with the world. You know, he says, if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. Amen. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, taking every thought captive, <clears throat> casting out every vain imagination and anything that exalts itself above the word of God. Amen. It's by might, it's not by power, it's by my spirit, saith the Lord. Amen. Spirit of the Lord is is freedom. We're not supposed to have nothing. This world is fallen. If if, if we're double my like it says in James, his brother James, where it says, you know, what he talks all, all through James, what his brother Jude said about these guys coming into the church, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness, yeah. using great swelling words. He said when Satan came to get Moses' body that uh, he didn't make any vain accusations against him. No railing accusations, you're right. Yeah, he said, the Lord rebuke you and took off. He already worked him over, but he didn't have to do that. And we are at the point now where politics and Christianity are being equated. They're trying to bring them together. It's oil and water. It doesn't mix. And it's horrible. Minded in, in these areas because if we're double-minded, we're like the waves of the sea being tossed to and fro. How can we receive anything from God? How can we pray in God's name against... He said not. He said to, to pray for our leaders. Uh, God can change them. He hardened Pharaoh's heart uh, so the Jews could leave, but the Jews were in, pretty, were in uh, slavery for years. You know what I mean? I do. So, but they got everything back, and they, got, they left, and they still had their problems. But the thing is, it's all our Savior. God has nothing to do with this world. His kingdom is not meat or drink. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Amen. God didn't give us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. Amen. Pride goes before a fall. He resists the proud, and they're trying to put pride back into me that took me years to get rid of because my self-righteousness was like filthy rags. I believe. And Christianity, that's not Christianity. That's of this world. That's vain imaginations. Lord save me. Hallelujah. I mean, I, I'm right with you. You can come up here and do it. I'm right with you. Godliness is not gain, but contentment is so godliness. Good. You know, in James, it talked about the rich. It talked about their ways, and it talked about how they persecute people, just like you were, the, the scriptures that you, were, uh, that you were talking about. We are at a point now where the goats are going to be separated from the sheep because men have come into the church as wolves in sheep clothing yep. to divide the flock. People care more about the material things of this world than they do the spiritual things of God. Amen. These things on earth will rust, decay, and mold, and robbers will come in and steal them. I love this guy. Hey, Jesse, are you LDS? I used to be. Oh, I used to be. It cost me. It cost me my. Uh, almost cost me my. Every. Almost cost me everything at one time. I was shunned. Uh, you know. Praise God. And you're 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 definitely a believer now. Well, I believe this uh, straight up is that we cannot, we are seeing biblical things. It says in Romans what the state of the world is going to be. When they asked Jesus, they said, what are going to be the signs of your coming and the end of the age? Well, anybody read that in Matthew 24 and see, and see what it says. Yeah. It'll scare the heck out of you. Yeah. It doesn't say that we're going to replace this country, we're going to replace all this other stuff. And this thing about men standing before God and trying to take his glory, they will be removed. And Good this country luck, huh? removed. Good luck. Jesse, fantastic call. Thank you so much, my brother. So glad you came out of Mormonism. I mean, you're a man of the word. We need more guys like you. Thanks, and my you brother. Stay in there, too, because you know what? We're going to be persecuted for Christ's sake. And if we're not persecuted, then we're none of him. Absolutely. And Absolutely. we are. I'll see you in the gutter.
God bless you. God bless you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I love it. Where's the heart? Where is the willingness to just say, you know, I'm just, I'm not a citizen of this world. Lord, help us. Serve, love, feed the poor, do the thing, pray to Jesus, share him. Where is that? Suddenly it's all changed. It's like Jesse was saying. I couldn't have articulated it better. Praise God for him. Listen, Justin in Eastvale, California is calling. Justin, you're on Heart of the Matter. Justin? Hey, Sean. Hey, you're on the air. Thanks. Um, I got sort of an interesting question about a Mormon friend that I had. Okay. And um, I, I do, like, Bible studies at his house. I'm trying to show him who the real Jesus is. And uh, he said a strange thing to me one time when his wife was upstairs and kids were upstairs. He looked at me and he said, uh, I didn't really want to marry my wife. The, uh, the church told me to. Wow. And he was, like, I, I almost proud of it or something. But uh, I thought it was interesting. And uh, as far as I knew, there's a myth out there that that in the supposed pre-existence, there's a soulmate and you can see that you know it. Yeah. But for me, is a little bit inside about that. Well, you know, back when I was a teenager, there was a very popular play called Saturday's Warrior. And the whole thing is about people who knew each other in the pre-existence and promised they would find each other down here on Earth. And so there's, uh, there's this whole romanticism going on, you know. And I used to use that to my benefit when I was LDS and go to steak dances. I would go up to girls and say, did I know you? Before. And of course, their heart gets all flitter flattered, and then you got an easy makeout in the car. But uh, uh, so it is, it's romanticism. And right. Joseph was romantic, so yeah, absolutely. It was perpetrated very popularly in the 70s and 80s. I don't know about now. So is, is that something that's common that, you know, the church will kind of tell you, hey, marry this person? You know, uh, it depends on probably where you live. I know in Southern California, it doesn't happen much. Uh, but, you know, that happens in most cultures. Hey, you know, you ought to try, you know, the Jews did that. And, you know, there's matchmaking and things like that. It goes on in, in most religious cultures. But in some of the LDS avenues, for instance, in Ezra Taft Benson's family, I mean, it was like the family decided who you were going to marry. And I think that does go on in some of the more, um, I don't know, what, how to, how to, more higher echelon LDS families. Right. And I guess the reason that was interesting is because it was California. Yeah, yeah. Hey, great call. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sean. Okay, God bless. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Uh, okay, listen. Uh, we're at, I'm going to go right now, okay? Uh, we don't have calls. That's fine because with six minutes remaining, this Saturday at Lifeway Christian Bookstore, uh, one of the only Christian bookstores in the state except for Oasis up in Logan on Murray State Street, uh, if you want a Jesus sign, we brought one to show you. There's a huge one behind me. I mean, this is the last time we're going to do it, and then after the elections, it's all going to come down. But uh, I was told by Derek that 1.3 million uh, Americans are writing Jesus' name in, and uh, I love that. So if you want a sign, we have some left. Go to Lifeway Christian Bookstore. There's the address, 2 to 3, this coming Saturday, and you'll be able to pick one up. Then on Sunday, come on over to the University of Utah for uh, one of our gatherings, 10 a.m. milk, 2.30 p.m. meet, and there we uh, go through verse by verse the Word of God. Um, we also have communion on the first Sunday of every month, so if you want to experience communion uh, with us, come join us this Sunday. 
Uh, also, AM820 replays Heart of the Matter uh, every Sunday from 1 to 2 for your listening enjoyment. AM820 is a great Christian radio station here in the state of Utah. Before we close up tonight, I want to address a few common responses I've had and heard from our position as I presented it like this to churches all over. Uh, the first point uh, from many evangelicals is about abortion. And they say Christians must fight against Abortion. I know evangelical Christians believe that it's their duty to fight against abortion, but the question remains, uh, how? Uh, I am not saying that. What, what are the weapons of Christian warfare? This is the thing. The best weapon is sharing Jesus. Why? Because you share him to somebody who's had an abortion. They find salvation in him. They come to Jesus from their sin. If you share Jesus with somebody who's thinking of having one, they have an opportunity for his power to convince them not to. You share Jesus with parents. They influence family. All of those things. Jesus is the solution. Fighting the sin is not. It never has been. Scripture is plain that we do not war against flesh and blood, that our weapons uh, for warfare are spiritual, my friends. Even more to the point, Jesus paid for all sin, past, present, and future, over 2,000 years ago. And so uh, why do Christians believe they must stop sin in this world when it has been paid for? Now, that's not a liberal attitude. It's a reality. It's been paid for. We're trying to get people to understand the solution to the fact that it exists. Monitoring and trying to stop sin is ridiculous. People are, are going to go to hell because they haven't believed, and they're going to go to heaven because they have believed. That's what we're out trying to do. Jesus came and paid for the sin. Now let's focus on sharing him. Finally, and perhaps even more interestingly, uh, I could point out, and we learned this from Pam, one of our viewers down south, a good friend of ours, who worked here in Utah in the Pregnancy Resource Center, and she pointed out to me that in her time in the Pregnancy Resource Center, LDS don't give a rat's rear end about the Pregnancy Resource Center or the abortions that could or couldn't uh, take place. And let me tell you something, they do not view abortion like Christians do. Christians view a life within the womb of a woman as a life as viable as somebody else's. They view it that seriously, and abortion is out. Mormons say abortion is okay if the woman has been raped, if it's incest, or if her life is in danger. Christians say we trust God, abortion is not okay. Romney, when he was in uh, a, a Latter-day Saint, and I'm not talking about him as a candidate, but as a Mormon in Massachusetts, supported abortion. He now says he's had changed his mind, but we can see they do not support uh, anti-abortion the way the Christian does. So there's just another thing to think about. Others uh, have come and suggested that the Bible is clear that we must be pro-Israel. That's another point they're saying as to why we need to get involved in this. I want to tell you something. I totally agree. Believers need to be pro-Israel, but it refers to individual ideology. It refers to our own individual beliefs. It does not, it believes, it pertains to our uh, prayers and support for Israel as a nation. If you think it means that we need to keep our country supporting Israel, I've got news for you. Someday this country is going to turn on Israel. And who knows who's going to do it? Might be the president we have now, might be the president who comes later. No matter who it is, we will turn. And so that suffering is going to increase even more. So you can't use the Israel argument in terms of making sure that our country stays that way. It's not going to. Finally, when it comes to Christians voting for Mormons, I'm always hearing uh, it's the lesser of two evils. Well, it's the lesser, that's the new uh, phrase. It's the lesser of two evils. Um, when has it been okay for a Christian to endorse any evil? I mean, when, where, where, where do we get that? It's like saying you can choose Mussolini or Stalin. Which do you want? 
Oh, we're going to choose Mussolini. He's lesser evil than Stalin. All of it's wrong. That's why we aren't involved in the things of this world and the politics that keep it running. There's no lesser of uh, uh, two evils in Christianity. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. Finally, let me remind every viewer tonight that anyone who watches this tape in the future to vote for a Mormon is to vote for Mormonism. Absolutely. Can you imagine the message the body of Christ could have sent to this world in America if the Billy Grahams and, and all the guys, I don't mean to pick on Billy Graham alone, if everybody said, we will not vote for anybody, we are not going to do it in this election. Why? The world asks why. Because we have this person and this person, this ideology, this religion. We are not doing it. In fact, we're going we're to pull from it anyway. Can you imagine how much, what that would say to people who are in India and Africa and places where Mormon missionaries are knocking on their door? They would say, you, your Christians in your country wouldn't even vote for your, we're scared of you. But now what have we done? We have made it so that we think in protecting ourselves and our own interests, we think that we've done something great when in fact what we've done is stuff the LDS churches if, if, if a Mormon wins. We have stuffed them full of people who are going to be trapped into that uh, religion. It's unbelievable. So we could have done something different, but we didn't because we didn't look. Instead, we sold ourselves out, sold out the Christian truth, and instead of standing for the true and living God, we've rationalized uh, their collective support for a person who does not believe or support the eternal tenets of our faith. No matter what happens, we will pay for the support we have given to man. We should pull away from all support from men, and we should get on our knees and work with our God. Mark my words. The day will come that your congregates, when they're getting swept away into LDS churches because of these decisions, you, will, you were warned. Next week, we're going to get back into the Book of Mormon and finish out the year in that. Join us here on Heart of the Matter.